Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the LA Review of Books Radio Hour, the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour. If you're looking for another great literary podcast, check out the LA Review of Books Radio Hour. Actually, uh, it's a half hour, but they're aspirational. The LARB Radio Hour, as it is known, is a weekly variety show featuring interviews with authors, screenwriters, and playwrights. There are uh, book recommendations, amusing analyses of the latest films, television series, uh, and, of course, more books. Search for the LARB Radio Hour over at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find the show at the Los Angeles Review of Books website. They post a new episode every Thursday at lareviewofbooks.org. The Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour. It's a literary podcast. You can listen to it. Go and download it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somewhat ingratiating. This is gradually working its way into your routine. How's it going? What's happening? Thank you for listening. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California, which uh, for the next couple of weeks anyway is going to be a very literary city. It's all it's always a literary city, but especially so in the coming weeks. We have AWP happening this weekend, uh, and then the week after that we have the LA Times Festival of Books. So back-to-back literary extravaganzas happening right here in my hometown. And uh, while I'm thinking about this, let me plug a couple of events that I will be participating in this weekend during AWP. On Friday night, April 1st, I will be up on stage at the Literary Deathmatch interviewing Melissa Broder, author of the uh, Red Hot essay collection, So Sad Today. Melissa is also, uh, as many of you know, the genius behind the So Sad Today Twitter feed with uh, more than 300,000 followers and counting. She also happens to be my screenwriting partner. Uh, the Literary Deathmatch, tickets still available. That is happening at the Ace Hotel Theater, 8 p.m., Friday night, April 1st. For uh, information on tickets, go to literarydeathmatch.com. And then on uh, Saturday night, the following night, April 2nd, there's another event. I will be participating in a panel called the Lit Slash Comedy Roundtable. This is hosted by Dave Reedy. It's presented by Curbside Splendor. 
I, I will be uh, sitting on a panel with a bunch of funny writers and funny people, comedians, screenwriters, what have you. And uh, I believe admission is free. It's happening 8 o'clock Saturday night, April 2nd at the Improv Olympic West Theater uh, up on Hollywood Boulevard. For more information, uh, Google it. Lit Comedy Roundtable Curbside Splendor. You'll find it. Or I think go to curbsidesplendor.com. I think that's the website. You guys know how to do this, right? You have computers. My guests today are Lee Stein and Lux Alptrom. They are uh, the brains, or uh, some of the brains, behind Out of the Binders, a nonprofit devoted to advancing the careers of women and non-gender conforming writers uh, in all media. And uh, Lee and Lux were just out here in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago for BinderCon. Have you heard of this? BinderCon? I think a lot of people are aware of it now. BinderCon uh, is a bi-coastal, semi-annual professional development conference. So it's, it's you know, of the same ilk as AWP. It's a big conference uh, for female and non-gender conforming writers, essentially. So Lee and Lux, uh, while they were out here, I think in the wake of the big conference, they were both uh, exhausted but uh, genial. They were gamers. They came over. They sat down. And we talked about out of the binders. We talked about BinderCon, what it means, how it started, and so on and so forth. I have to admit, it was a little unnerving for me. Whenever I get into talking about gender stuff, I get a little uh, nervous, worried that I'm going to say something dumb, worried that I'm going to say something, uh, you know, not politically correct. I'm going to somehow reveal myself to be ignorant, which happens all too frequently. But uh, it was a good it was a good talk. Lee and Locks were very patient with me, and I feel like we had a, a really good conversation about uh, some stuff that uh, needs to be talked about. And I think that what they're doing is really cool. I say this to them uh, in our conversation. I, I have a great amount of admiration for people who put stuff like this together. It's a huge undertaking, and it's uh, you know it's been invented out of thin air. Now, I think, to be fair, it's not just Lee and Lux. There are a lot of people involved, but they're, they're steering the ship, and they're, they're working uh, a lot of hours to make sure uh, you know, that everything kind of uh, goes as planned, and they've had some great success. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, without any further ado, this is my conversation with Lee Stein and Lux Alptrom, uh, the uh, directors. Is that the right word? 
the brain children of Out of the Binders and BinderCon. So we run an organization called Out of the Binders, and it was inspired by a private Facebook group for women writers that was started by this freelancer from Toronto who just thought it would be funny to make a group based on what Mitt Romney said one time. Okay, yeah, because have... in the election in uh, 2012, he said he had binders full of women. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, I've hired women. Like, I've been brought binders full of them. And everyone <laughs> kind of was like, oh. And, and memes exploded all over the Internet. So this young woman in Toronto started a private Facebook group. And the idea was that women would add their friends who were also writers and she asked her friend, Haley Malatek, who was editor of The Hairpin, like, do you think this is a good name for our Facebook group? And Haley was like, you can always change it later. <laughs> and it exploded overnight. And within a few months, there were 30,000 members. And that's when I was, like, checking the group every day. I was on vacation in Europe, and I brought my laptop so that I could check the group every day because I loved it so much. What was it about it that you loved? There were just, like... I felt like we were recreating the old boys network with like an old girls network because people were connecting others to editors. They were cheering each other on and pitching. And I was seeing women say things like, oh, I never thought I would be in the Atlantic until this group. And now I'm in the Atlantic. So I was just seeing people like get above these barriers um, that were in their minds that existed for them. And so I was like, let's have a conference. Um, and over 100 people said they would help me do it. And Lux was the first person to say, like, you need to raise money for this. And I was like, oh, that's a really good idea that I didn't Lux, think of. you had some practical uh, sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I had event and planning experience. I'd done award shows. And I also – so I had been involved in a lot of groups where – there's this sentiment of like, well, nobody can be in charge. We're all in this together. Let's just do a bake sale. And so when I saw these posts, I was like, well, it's either going to be that, in which case me coming in and being like, you need committees, you need hierarchy, we need money. Um, if that, if it's going to be one of these like disorganized, like nobody in charge type things, I'll just get run out on a rail. Right. And I'll be like, good, I avoided a disaster. But I was like, if people respond well to this, then I'll be like, okay. I should do this. And Lee's immediate response was, you should be my co-chair. <laughs> well, that's good sense, though. You knew that you, ne you needed somebody who understood the logistics of it and could get – because, you know, it is, it's a big operation. There has to be, like you said, there has to be cash flow. There has to be hierarchy. There have to be people with assigned responsibilities. Otherwise, it just turns into a shit show. Yeah. It's not going to get off the ground. Right. And you're not going to be effective in, you know, doing whatever it is that you're setting out to do. Right. right? So, yeah, so I had no idea how much work it would be when I had this idea, but, or else I never would have done it. But um, I feel like that's a, that's a pattern in my life. Well, <laughs> it's like, a running theme. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's good, though. You like to experiment, like leap in the net, shell appear, whatever, yes. that kind of attitude. Yeah, so we had a Kickstarter. We set our goal at 40000 We raised 55000 and we organized the first uh, New York City conference in three months. We got Jill Abramson from the New York Times. We got Leslie Jameson. How did you Holmes. get them? Um, just connections. Um, I just felt like we just all like took stock of what resources we already had and what connections we already had and just started like asking people for favors. Um, I asked a friend who knew Leslie Jameson if she would ask Leslie. We had um, a moderator for one of our journalism panels, had a connection to Jill Abramson. She asked her. And she said yes. Yeah, she said she yes. No arm twisting, no bribes. No. It's you, didn't just... have to, you didn't have to take a chunk of that 55000 and be like, come on. Right, right, well. right. I mean, we do pay keynotes a oh, small do. honorarium. I mean, but it's like, 
a small fraction of what someone like Jill Abramson or Lisa Kudrow or Effie Brown's caliber could really And they uh, all came get. too? Lisa Kudrow um, came? Lisa Kudrow and Effie Brown were at our most recent conference. Okay. So we've been like exploding and now we're getting A-listers. Yeah, really, we're like a community. So once you get that, once you get that, like, we're all doing this together, I think people get on board with that. And if they don't, then they aren't, like, a part of the spirit. It's a good cause. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, it's an easy, easier thing to get people to say yes to. It's not like you're asking them to do something that's horrible. Right? Right. Yeah, like a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Come sit in my filthy garage and talk to me for an hour. That's a much harder ask. Um, but you know, I've heard it said in the past, uh, by women, like friends of mine, maybe my wife, I don't know, but like, you know, women in the workplace can sometimes not be as helpful to one another. Sometimes there can be like, you get in and you're in the office and then there's another woman there and you would think, oh, we're supposed to help each other and be there to support. But there can be sometimes like, you know, competition and like a, a not so friendly vibe. And this seems to work against that. Yeah. Something that really shocked me was that, um, Jenny Lumet, who's a screenwriter, she's on our board of directors, she told me, um, you know, you should get involved with Austin Film Fest. It's run by women. It's, it's, the, it's the film festival for writers in Austin every year. So I went, this, went in October. They asked me to moderate a panel. I moderated the Chicks with Bix panel. Bic like a pen. <laughs> wink. Because everyone's um, writing with Bix these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what was really interesting is that one of the, you know, it was all female screenwriters, and one of them said... Um, only men have helped my career. Like women are backstabbing. It's all competition. Only men have helped me. And it kind of blew my mind because it was so like against the spirit of the work I do. But I think it is true that we have different experiences and some women do experience that, you know, when you reach a certain, there's so few women in leadership positions across, not, I'm not just talking about writing, but like across the board that, um, you know, the field gets narrower and narrower as you get closer to the top. So unfortunately, there is competition, but we're, if we can get more women in those leadership roles, we can help more women up the ladder so that we're reaching gender parity across you, the board. Are you seeing that happen? Like, what, are you seeing that happen with um, the Facebook group and then these conventions? Are you, are you hearing stories of connections oh, yeah. being made? And like, oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Also, I just want to go back on the women not helping women thing because – so my mother is 72. She's a scientist. and What kind she, of scientist? Uh, but, well, so now she's now she does like fundraising and she got into administration. But growing up, she was a biochemist. Okay. Um, smart lady. Yeah. No, very, very smart parents. Um, like, but when my mother, back in the 60s, when my mom was in like grad school, first, at her first grad program, she actually was kicked out after she had a baby. Not for being pregnant, but for having a baby. Um, and then she was a high school teacher and then she got back in grad school. But anyway, when I was growing up, when my mother had her lab, I remember my mother telling me, you know, there's a lot of women who came up and they fought sexism and they went through all of this. And then they were like, I got mine. Fuck everyone else. And they kind of just closed the door behind them. And they're like, you know what? You, you fend for yourself. And I was always raised to believe that that's not how you do that. And well, I've heard the same thing said in a racial context as well. Right. Like people get out of the ghetto and then they don't go back. Right. I think there's a lot of people who maybe just because of trauma or maybe just because of bitterness, they're like, I dealt with all of this and I don't want to help anyone else. You can all fend for yourselves, which I think is not constructive. And I think, you know, you know, you, you become an adult and you, like, realize all these things about your childhood that you sort of took for granted. Like, I realized as an adult that, you know, my mom, my mom in her lab that she was running, all her postdocs and grad students were women. And so I just, 
it never occurred to me that like women don't do science because I had a mother who did science and she had a lab full of women. And I asked her at one point and I was like, oh, did you intentionally like have a lab full of women? And she was like, no, I think it was just that these female grad students were just drawn to me because they're like, this will be a more supportive environment than working with a man. And that's not about writing, but I think, you know, the gender stuff does relate. I was going to say, you turned out to be such a great scientist. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, that's a whole other thing. A scientist of words. That's right. A scientist of gender parody. (laughs) So, okay. So you guys get together at the beginning of this thing based on a Facebook group, inspired by a Facebook group. This is a very contemporary story. Yes. You kind of leap. And then in midair, say, "Oh shit! Like, how do I do this?" And then you stepped into the, <laughs> you stepped into the uh, the void with her. And I just also want to say, in case it's not clear, we did not know each other before this at all. Okay. We met in a bar at our first planning meeting, and it's actually it was very serendipitous because as it happens, we have incredibly compatible working styles. Like Lee is about feelings, and I am about rationality, <laughs> and like I will be the bad cop. <laughs> Lee is a very good, good cop. You know, I think big picture. She's incredibly detail-oriented in a way I'm not. And I mean, if I had to, like, if I had to, like, imagine a really good working partner for myself, it would basically be Lee, and I just magically found her. That's awesome. What bar was this that you met at? Just so we can put it in the historical record. Hi-Fi on, in the, is it East Village? Hi-Fi on Avenue A. That's where BinderCon was born, ladies and gentlemen. It is. It is. Okay, so... The first binder con. You have Jill Abramson, correct? You have yes. Leslie Jameson. Uh, Holmes. Anna Holmes. Okay. You've planned all this stuff. What does it look like? What do you do? Like, where is it? What happens there? Well, it looks very diverse um, because we were very strategic about how we were going to bring diversity to our conference from the very beginning. Um, so we aim to have at least 50% women of color on our speakers roster. And we also look for different kinds of diversity on each panel. So we don't just want women of color talking about how they're women of color. We want to have panels that have women of color, disabled women, trans women, non-binary attendees on different panels. What does that mean? What does non-binary mean? Yeah. Non-binary. Uh, so basically gender is a spectrum. Yeah. And we've been taught to believe it's like you're either a man or you're a woman and that's all there is. But there's some people who say, you know, I don't feel like I'm either and I identify as non-binary or maybe genderqueer. Uh, and it just means like you exist along the spectrum between these two. I don't even want to say opposites because I think that's a bad construction of gender, but between these two points on the spectrum. Okay. And non-binary people might use pronouns like he or she, or they might use the pronoun they, or they might use something altogether different, depending. Like some people have custom pronouns, but it's becoming more common for people to use the pronoun they if they don't identify as he or she. Like they refer to themselves as they? Yeah. Like I have have a friend who – who was on Transparent and is a well-known porn performer named Jiz Lee. And Jiz identifies as genderqueer. And so if I were to talk about them, as I am now, I'd say like, oh, yeah, you know, I was spoken to Jiz. They say that they're going to come to town in two days, something like that. And initially, Does that feel strange? So it felt a little strange initially, but then I thought about it, and the singular they is kind of already being adopted in language. If you think about it, like – because we used to say, like, he or she, he or she, and it's so clunky. But if I say, like, I saw this, st- like, the student will grab their pencil at the end of class. Like, that's something that's kind of, Shakespeare uses it. It's in our language already. 
And I think it's just an easier way to eliminate gender. Of course, this is only if we're speaking English, because you go to Spanish or French or German, it's a whole other thing entirely. But for English speakers, it's a occasionally awkward, but I think better solution than some I've seen for just eliminating gender from someone's pronoun. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, uh, I get it. I think maybe over time it'll become more normalized and probably my kid's generation using a singular they will be no big deal. Well, because when you think about it, it's so strange that the importance we put on gender is in some ways very strange because why should the fact that someone was born with a certain set of body parts be the first thing that you have to know about them? Like, what? what is it? And the, the reason we think it's the first thing, it's the most important thing, is because we correlate gender and biological gender with all these different things. We say, like, oh, women are more emotional, women are this, men are this, men are that. So we're telling ourselves, if I know your gender, I kind of know what kind of person you are. But it's bullshit. And, I mean, I, I will say, I think, I don't want to say gender is not important and gender doesn't. Uh, affect who we are and that we should all be in identical beige tunics but uh well, i mean by the way all three of us are wearing beige tunics right, right of now. course that's that's what i wear every day it's so comfortable <laughs> but no i mean i think you know my lived experience as a woman has obviously shaped who i am it's it shaped my opportunities it's shaped a lot of things about me but at the same time i think if we can get away from making assumptions about gender or seeing someone's gender as the most important thing about them. I think that would be so much healthier for all of us. Yeah. The question is, how do we get there? We're working on it. Yeah. That's what this is about though. This is about, this is about BinderCon and correct me if I'm wrong, is about women helping women, breaking down barriers in the workplace, creating a more supportive network of professional females, Mm -hmm. um, but also creating uh, a supportive space for people who don't conform to uh, gender norms. Exactly. And so we say that, um, you know, as we're gaining invisibility, um, we're starting to get, like, for example, scholarship applications from men who say on their application they looked they looked at everything on our website and they would love to attend. You know, and I'm like huge eye roll. Um, <laughs> but Lux and I say, you know, the point of it's intentionally created to help people who haven't benefited from male privilege. And so if that's been your experience, then BinderCon is for you. Okay. I don't I'm trying, you know, I guess I've, I mean, I think I've definitely benefited from male privilege, especially white male privilege. Like, I don't want to make this about me. (laughs) I really don't. (laughs) But I, I have been going through this a lot over the past couple of years, because especially with the social media, I have more access to this sort of information and these sort of dialogues and arguments and heated exchanges sometimes. Um, but man, I can I can get into a self-hating mode. I'm just like I'm so embarrassed to be a white man, and it can you can start to feel like what what am I supposed to do? I, I feel like a like you're just inherently dickish because of this. <laughs> so I feel like I mean, look, Lee and I are both white women. Um, I come from I don't come from like tons of money, but I certainly come from like a comfortable place of privilege where I went to an Ivy League university and my parents paid for pretty much all of my college tuition and I didn't have I had like ten thousand dollars in student loan debt like someone where'd you go I went to Columbia okay so I had minimal student loan debt you know I am absolutely a person who has a lot of privilege I don't think that guilt over privilege helps anybody because we've seen people sometimes like there was an interview with a woman that we saw and she was just like well I don't even deserve this book deal it's 
you know, I don't deserve to have this book. Like I've had so much privilege. It's terrible. Like there's so many more other deserving marginalized writers. And I don't think that that benefits anybody like guilt because in a, a perverse way, if you just make it about guilt, you're still making it about you. See, that's because, my problem. Right. right there. You're just like, I'm so awful. It's so <laughs> terrible. Blah, blah, blah. And I think that's that doesn't help anybody. Right. What I think does help is accountability and awareness. So, you know, when I go into the world as a white person who benefits from white per, pri, white privilege, I try to be aware things are a little bit easier for me. How can I be aware of that? How can I make it so that they're easier for other people who don't benefit from my white privilege? And how can I be accountable and aware of the ways that I might fuck up or the things that I don't get? I mean, my partner is a black man and we frequently have conversations where I'll be like, you are like, you're just ignorant of your male privilege or he'll tell me like, I'm ignorant of my white privilege. And we're just open and honest about it. And at no point are we like, I'm the worst person, but we are aware of like, oh, I might fuck up. Let me like be open to understanding. And I think like those kinds of conversations are necessary. And I think like, you know, some of my best friends are straight white men and they're not like, I'm the worst. I'm so terrible. They're like, yeah, the world is fucked up. I see how a lot of white dudes are not, not getting it. Even white dudes who sometimes say they're feminists. It's more about making it about them and what a great guy they are than about actually like actively leveling the playing field. And I just think as an ally, as a person of privilege, Go do awesome work. Go, like, fight for yourself. Be successful. Get something awesome. But also remember that sometimes your most important role is to sit back and listen and not take up space. That's actually, I mean, speaking of male feminists who I want to make fun of, um, I'm not going to name any names, but the reason why male feminists, I think, get a bad rap is not to me because men can't be feminist or men can't ally with the feminist cause. Like I absolutely know some men who I think do amazing feminist work, but the problem like is, who? Oh, who, uh, like I know artists. Jenny Lumet loves John- Jonathan Demi's done a lot of stuff, stuff to support female creators. Um, I mean, some of these are just like my personal friends. Right. Like I like Josh Gondelman. He's a stand up dude. Um, I really, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm mostly thinking about like, because I think about this a lot in the comedy scene because a lot of dudes in comedy, and I do comedy, and a lot of dudes in comedy kind of suck. Um, and so I think... Let's just say Aziz's name. Uh, I don't... <laughs> so I was mad about Aziz, but then I thought Aziz... I thought he delivered. Like, I got annoyed when Aziz went on TV and was like, I'm feminist. And everyone was like, whoa, let's drop our panties. He's the best. Because I'm like, okay... Really, just going on TV and being like, women deserve equal pay. Like, that's that's our bar for, like, you're a feminist hero. But then, Master of None, I thought, really did deliver. And, like, some of it was, like, real basic 101. But he did create, like, nuanced female characters who didn't feel like they were just, like, sexy plot device. And there were women writers on that show. Right. There were women writers. He, like, hired women writers. And, yeah, so... I'm I'm sidetracking a little, but my point is that I think a lot of times when men label themselves as feminists, it's because 
they're like, being a feminist is a good thing. I want attention. If I call myself a they feminist. They want to get laid. It's like yes. they want to endear themselves to women. Right. They want to endear themselves to women. And then what they do is they like go into a room and they're like, I'm a feminist. And they suck up all the air. And they're like, ladies, listen to me. Let me tell you how to be a feminist. Yeah. Which is exactly the problem. Don't mansplain feminism. Right. Just like as like rule number one. Like it just feels like. I'm not going to go to the NAACP and be like, black people, let me tell you how to how to get ahead in the world. The whole point of marginalized groups having organizations is marginalized groups putting themselves center stage. And we really do try to um, live up to this. And, for example, you know, because people are like, we don't we don't allow with some exceptions we really don't allow men in our conference. I'm so. sorry I couldn't do the keynote. I really <laughs> I apologize. I know. Well, you know. <laughs> but you know, like no male speakers. Um we really just don't want men. The thing about male attendees like if it's there are certain cases where it makes sense, but a lot of times I'm like, well, if you're there to participate and to learn and to pitch, then you're taking a space from a woman or a gender nonconforming person. And if you're there to watch, we're not zoo animals so it doesn't sit right for me to have men in the space unless like they're working on our film crew or if it's a sponsor who just wants to see what the event is like that i understand um but that said sometimes we get pushback that's like well you're the real sexists you're keeping men out okay let's stop here because i want to ask about uh sometimes no 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 it's good because it's it brings up an interesting question um about uh gender parity about these issues about the kinds of uh, arguments and uh, resentments, the kind of anger I often see on social media. That's really the venue where I see the most of it out in yeah. like the public square. Um, and I, I sometimes feel like there's a lot of desire for vengeance. There, there, there's like, you know, we want payback. We want to get even. And it makes me a little uncomfortable because it's like, I don't, I don't know if I'm an eye for an eye person. I, I think that, you know. I don't want to say it makes us all blind, but you know, I think it does. I think it's. Well, a, I don't think we want like revenge against men. We just want. But like, I, I sometimes feel like that, not from you, but from right. from uh, women who are interested in these issues and passionate about these issues. I sometimes sense like, you know, they want they're out for blood, or they just hate men, and it's like, well, uh, you know, I don't know what I don't even know how to react to that. I think it's it comes from this idea that there isn't enough to go around, and like we're all fighting over the same piece of the pie. But if we think about it as, as you know, getting more women leaders will give more opportunities to everybody. And there's data, I can't off the top of my head, but there's like data that says like if you get more women in board positions or in, in the C-suite and companies, like those companies make more money. Like it's beneficial for everybody if we advance the careers of women. And it's not because we're trying to ruin men. <laughs> and also like just to flip it, or do you want to say something, Lux? I mean, I am, no, I'm not trying to ruin men. I am only trying to ruin men as a joke. I mean, so I think like, I think in every movement, there are very angry people. And you see it in, like, anti-racist movement. You see it in the trans movement. You see it in the gay rights movement. There are absolutely people who are disenfranchised and who are like, fuck you all. I'm going to flip it, and then I'm going to oppress everybody else. And I don't think that's okay. And I actually, when I notice people who seem to only be out for their group, I get leery because to me that says, well, if you get in charge, you'll just be as shitty as the people currently in charge. Um, I'm personally not interested in hurting men i think maybe i would rather see a really brilliant accomplished woman in a position rather than a mediocre man 
who has been coasting solely because he's a man. What about a mediocre woman over a really accomplished man? I don't think that. I don't think that's progress. You don't think that's progress? I okay. think you know. I think we talk a lot about meritocracy and meritocracy. We're unless white men are just naturally better at everything. We're not in a meritocracy because right. it's way disproportionately. Uh, men in positions, and I don't. I don't think mediocre people should be. Like, I genuinely believe that the quality of your work and the audience for your work should be what's dictating it. And right now, we're saying that it's about the quality of the work, but there's so much bias that's just saying like, well, but it's what white men can relate to that that's that's better. Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean, just to make sure that we're clear. Um, I mean, it seems like a really obvious thing, but it should be said. You know the the misandry is that the word is less of a issue in the world than misogyny to say the least uh and so uh, you know you talked about getting women into positions of power in the corporate world or in the media world or whatever it is uh where positions of influence what did you call it the c room what is it the c-suite well, c-suite what does that mean like ceo oh okay C-O-O. C-O-O, oh, yeah. cto so yeah it makes me think like uh, I love uh, having women around. What is it with men who just want to be around other bros? What's up with that? Like, why? Are, what? What are they threatened by? Like, that's a weird this thing. This kept coming up, like, like just this past weekend in like the Lisa Kudrow keynote, which will be available by video soon. Um, but like the idea, like Lisa Kudrow, her whole career has been told like women aren't funny. Oh, except for you, Lisa, you're funny. <laughs> you know, it's like th- we keep getting told this story about ourselves as women. You know that that we don't belong, or that we're we stick out in a room. That's and by the way, men. and and by the way, if ever there were people who thought that women aren't funny, I feel like the last decade, especially, women have sort of dominated comedy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it feels that way. Yeah. So, um, but continue. Well, I want to say something about misandry because I like to joke about misandry, and I like to joke about hating men. I don't hate men. I do hate the patriarchy that causes a lot of men to make my life hell on a daily basis. But it's fu- what's funny to me is that I often see men – okay, sometimes a rape joke happens, right? And there will be pushback against it. And I see like a swarm of men being like, ladies, you can't take a joke. Ba, 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 ba. And then like two weeks later, you, I'll see – As a comedian, do you draw the, you draw the line there? And, and I, I draw the line at what's a good joke. And right. I think a lot of rape jokes are not good jokes. Right. I think there are jokes that are about rape culture that I think are hilarious. I am – deeply offensive as a comedian like i will say things that are really really offensive not necessarily in public but i have a very like vulgar sense of humor and i think you can make a joke about rape that's funny but i think like going back a few years when daniel tosh was like wouldn't it be funny if this audience member got raped that's not a joke that's harassment but you know when that happens, we see like the team of like internet bros being like, "Ladies, learn to take a joke." And then somehow, whenever I see you know the like mug of male tears or comedy misandry, it's those same men who are like, "See, women actually hate men." And it's so strange to me because I'm like, if you're gonna tell people grow a thicker skin, take a joke, it should go both ways. Yeah. And to me, you know, if. I mean, there is some famous line, I forget who said it, but it's something about like women are afraid of that. It's like men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will rape them. (laughs) Like the stakes are, I forget, I wish I remember who said it, but it's like the stakes are different. And when I see like, I've seen this on Twitter periodically where I make a joke about men and men get like 
real sensitive about it or like that's not fair and i'm like yeah, see i think know. i think everybody especially because of like i'm a I, i'm a believer in humor as a um leveling device or you know what i'm saying i think that we need to all take ourselves less seriously i mean yeah. obviously like jokes that aren't funny or that are just mean-spirited um and cruel that's one thing but if people are genuinely trying to make a joke we need to give each other room for laughter and we need to take ourselves less seriously so i i'm jewish not only am i jewish i'm the center of holocaust survivors so for me joking is a coping mechanism right and you know, I can't even – I have internet – I'm trying to not have internet conversations where I just get angry. But there was one years ago where I was being, like, pushed by someone who was like, well, it's terrible for you to, like, make jokes about white men, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know, the real joke's on me because I have to live every day as a gender where I'm constantly told that I'm inferior. And, you know, to the extent that I make jokes about men or mock men or whatever – and I make jokes about women too. I make jokes about whatever um, – it's coming out of a place of like, but this is how I manage. This is how I manage being in a body that is marginalized. And this is how I cope. And it's really insulting to me to see people who go into a room and don't have to ever worry that they don't belong. Don't ever have to worry that they will be taken less seriously purely because of the body they were born in. You belong in this filthy garage, you guys. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I mean, I'm... Thanks for having us. I'm a total trash mouth. I belong anywhere filthy. Uh, (laughs) But no, but he's... uh, it, uh, It bothers me when I see that, this idea of like... You made a joke, and that's the worst thing that's happened to well, me. Well, and I think too, like from a from a language aspect, uh, a language perspective, you know, humor is where we sort of test boundaries. It's also a way for us to talk about things that are uncomfortable uh, in a way that it's like a spoonful of sugar. You know, it, it can give us a a common language, you know, and, and bridge the divide. But it can also be a space where people are experimenting. You know, like you see comedians working out material at a comedy club, and like half the jokes bomb. You know, sometimes I feel sympathy for somebody who says something dumb, like tells a bad joke that's offensive. And then you're like, they're like, ah, oh, you know, they were just up there riffing and emotional and everyone's listening to them. And they, they just, they fucked up. I, I'm sympathetic well, that towards is that. Like, I think that is like what the internet has brought us is like this way to communicate instantly yeah. so that it's hard to find a space where nobody, you have to test your jokes out on an audience, but then you can't be like, audience, don't respond to this. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. And then it's like somebody's filming it with their phone and then the next day, you know, you're like pariah number one for, you know, 36 hours or whatever it is. But I, I, I just have to think like... If if I I'm not a comedian, but if I were a comedian, I was testing out a joke that I wasn't sure how it was going to go down in the room. Wouldn't I test it out on my friends? Like, wouldn't I get some feedback before I do it in public? I, yeah, but sometimes I think they I think I think they're improving sometimes. Like it just comes. It's you know yeah you you're you're up there yeah, doing as, this as my comedy. I mean I I don't do stand up I should say, but I do a largely improv show where I showcase sex ed movies. But I have done like some stand up open mics, and I know a lot of comedians. And, you know, especially at open mics, you are just doing raw material. And, you know, you could test it out on your friends, but it's just a different environment from testing it out in front of a crowd. I don't love call-out culture. I don't love the assumption that, like, someone made an off-color joke, therefore they're a horrible person and should be destroyed. I think the internet uh, outrage cycle is not all that useful. But, but you know, sometimes it's like sometimes you see jokes that get made. Like I was at I was at an open mic with a friend, 
And it was right around the time Caitlyn Jenner had, like, announced her new name. And, like, all all these white dudes kept going up and being like, I'm going to make my Caitlyn Jenner joke. I right. think the first guy that came up was like, you know what? Caitlyn Jenner should have changed her name to Trans Jenner. <laughs> and we're all like, really? <laughs> Really? I, I'm hoping you humor. were laughing at my presentation and not at that joke because it's a bad I am, joke. I'm a sucker for bad pun humor, I will admit. Um, I will I will share a brief anecdote related to Caitlyn Jenner uh, from last summer. I was at the ESPY Awards, which is like a sports Oscars. Yeah. Caitlyn Jenner won like the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, which, you know, brave choice for ESPN. And, uh, you know, she got up there and accepted the award and gave the speech. And I'm sitting in the audience and like in the front row is like the broiest like of broy you know quarterbacks professional athletes sitting there and like i'm watching the video screens of this moment like i feel like that cultural moment was sort of underestimated like the the oddity of it and like watching it was almost as interesting to me to watch the reaction of like brett Favre watching caitlin jenner <laughs> than it was to watch caitlin jenner give the speech does that make any sense it was yeah and i think this is like this speaks to the larger mission of what we're doing with our organization is like we're not only trying to get women paid to write, but we're trying to change the stories that we see in the culture. Like, how many times have we seen a trans woman win a major sporting award? Oh, yeah. Um, Never. Or right? even, like, when you were talking about, I can't remember, just a couple minutes ago, I was thinking about Mad Max. Because my, my boyfriend sent me an email that was basically, like, just links to all the MRAs, the men's rights activists who are angry about Mad Max, as to convince me to go see this movie with him. <laughs> And I was like, sold. Like, I'm there. Because everyone, they were all these, like, whiny babies about how, like, oh, they were tricked. Like, Charlize Theron is the lead. Like, that was such a trick that it isn't Mad Max the lead. <laughs> um, and I just thought, like, how often do I get to see a female lead in an action movie where there's no love story? Right. I never see that. This movie was, like, revolutionary. It was so feminist. It was so exciting to and, see this. And it was just a beautifully done. That was one of the best movies made last year, like, of any kind. Like, yeah. just the cinematography, the editing. Everything. It was a beautiful piece of cinema. And I then there's that crazy moment when the costume designer won the Oscar and she's walking up on stage and there's all these guys in suits not applauding her. And it's just like this perfect image of sexism. Like we we have so far to go. The doors have been open for women and we have to step through them. But we're like not there yet. Well, I'm, I didn't see the Oscars this year, but it was like she wasn't dressed like a normal because oh, she was wearing like a scarf and like a casual blazer or something right and they were just like oh somebody misread the invitation or whatever it is it's like fuck you yeah and she won the fucking oscar she can wear whatever she wants yeah <laughs> and she's a costume designer right yeah <laughs> so that's her costume fuck you <laughs> um so okay so la binder con that just happened this past weekend um what happened give me some stories did you hang with Lisa Kudrow? Oh, man, it was so awesome. I, I met, I was like, hi, I'm Leah, I'm the co-founder. She was like, hi, I'm Lisa. And I just thought like, oh my God, I know you, Lisa. <laughs> this is so exciting. The Effie Brown keynote was end of the day, Sunday. It like blew me. I think it was our best, one of our best keynotes ever. It was Effie Brown and Jenny Lumet. Um, and it ended, Is Jenny Lumet uh, related to Sydney Lumet? She is the granddaughter of Lena Horne and the daughter of Sydney Lumet. Okay. Um, her family has been in show business for five generations. She's, she jokes that they haven't had real jobs since 1900. Um, <laughs> and she wrote Rachel Getting Married? Yes. That movie. And she was the first woman of color for that movie. She was the first woman of color to win the Toronto Film Critics Circle Award and I think the New York Film Critics Circle Award. Um, that was the movie where I was like, oh my God, Anne Hathaway is really good. Oh, yeah. That sort of like blew the doors off. That's such a good movie. Yeah. So towards the end of their keynote, which was like bananas, 
um, they started talking about Zoe Saldana in the Nina Simone movie and whether that's blackface. And Effie Brown was saying it is. And Jenny Lumet was saying my grandmother, Lena Horne, had to wear makeup. Um, you know, Max Factor, Max Factor, the person, when Max Factor was a person, designed a makeup for Lena Horne called like Dark Egyptian or something so that Lena Horne was made darker when she was cast in movies. And Jenny Lumet was basically like, are you saying like my grandmother was performing in blackface? But it was this like each of them was right. You know what I mean? Like they were they were arguing, but both of them were right. And it just it was like such a powerful conversation between two brilliant women. So what what is the Zoe Saldana was playing? I uh, was playing um, Nina Simone. Yeah. And they had her made up to be blacker. Yeah. So basically, I mean, for those who don't know, Nina Simone was a heavy set, very dark skinned, very broad nosed woman. And so traditional African features, basically. And that was an essential part of who she was. Like, she sings about being dark-skinned. And we live in a... Look, we live in a culture where there's colorism, where dark-skinned people especially are treated as inferior to lighter-skinned people. And that's not just about white versus black. That's within the whole uh, range of different skin tones of blackness. Right. And, I mean, that still exists to this day. Like, I have friends who are, like, lighter-skinned black women, and they're like, yeah, such-and-such dude, like, wants his mom to marry me because then we can have beautiful light-skinned babies. And I've also heard, like, people, like, like black people who are lighter-skinned are sometimes not black enough. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of, like, fucked-up internalized racism and colorism and all that. So, that said, you know... Nina Simone was a fashion icon, was a musician, was a beautiful woman who happened to be dark-skinned, broad-nosed, and thick. And for especially for women like Effie Brown, who fit those categories, she is an icon and a symbol of real inspiration. And so when this movie was getting made, that I guess I, I was not involved in the production, so I can't say what the conversation was. But my assumption was they were like, well, we need a black woman for this role and we should get a black woman who's a big name. And they were probably casting shortly after Avatar and they were like, Zoe Saldana, who is, I don't, I don't know her exact background. I know she's Dominican. I believe she does identify as black, which sometimes Dominicans don't. Um, but regardless, she's thin And she's light-skinned, and she has a relatively thin nose. So to make her look like Nina Simone, they put dark makeup on her and a prosthetic nose. And all racial issues aside, I find it offensive because having watched the trailer, she looks about as realistic as she did in Avatar. I like, haven't seen any of it. Uh, does, the she makeup, look, does she not look she good? She just looks like CGI, basically. The makeup is just not done well. Oh. And when you have, like, actual dark-skinned women who are hurting for work, and you take this other woman, and you not only just put makeup on her, but put a bad makeup job on her that distracts from the performance, Right. it's just... I. And it's what because you get a bigger name. It just it just seems like such a mess. I think the movie is going to be terrible. Well, I mean, but they also did uh, like I mean, just to play devil's advocate and forgive me because I haven't thought this through fully. But like you know, you think of like Nicole Kidman in The Hours playing Virginia Woolf and wearing a prosthetic. You think of like Leo DiCaprio in um, what was the the FBI guy, um, J Edgar Hoover, and he's wearing all this makeup. You know what I'm saying? Like you can have, I mean, wearing makeup and to look the part. 
isn't necessarily damning, is it? But then yeah, you throw in the color aspect. and it's, Right. I think we're talking about like these marginalized communities who don't get as much representation on right, screen. Right. So even, you know, another Eddie Redmayne playing Lily Elba in The Danish Girl instead of casting a trans actress in that role. And, and the yep. director did cast trans actors in other parts in the role, but still the lead goes to Eddie Redmayne. He already got to play a disabled character instead of casting a disabled actor. Okay, but here's the thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I will speak to you, Lux, yeah. because you're the you're the, the brass-knuckled, common-sense business person of yeah. this tandem. They probably can't get the movie made without Zoe Saldana. Well, they probably so... can't get the movie made without Eddie Redmayne on the heels of his Oscar win for... Whatever it was, you know, like, that's like a business reality, isn't it? Well, okay, so they keep saying that. I, a couple of things, I guess. To go back to your question about makeup and to build off of what Lee says, like if it were all equal, like if Asian people were being cast to be white people and being made up to look like white, as well as white people with Asian, if like there were roles for everybody, it wouldn't be as offensive. It wouldn't be an issue. It would just be makeup. You know, it would just be about the best performance. But we recognize that there are already limited roles for people from marginalized populations, as Lee said. So given that, when you take someone who has so many other roles and then put them in a part that is made for, that should be for these people, that's kind of adding insult to injury. Now to the like big name question, if there are no roles for trans women or black women or Asian women, how are they ever going to get to be the name right. that can carry the film right. about trans women or black women? Or it becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, no, it may, you know, like what it makes me think of, maybe somewhat oddly, is uh, renewable energy. Here's it, but like, bear with me for a second because uh, you watch a show like Empire take off and become like the sensation of what is it? Last year's television season or whatever, like huge audience for this. Um, and then you think of all the money that's being made by the executives at Fox. I think it's on Fox. Uh, there's a huge audience out there that craves seeing people like them on screen represented. And they're underserved. And so it strikes me as a huge business opportunity. The reason I think of renewable energy is that like you have all these people who are like, you know, bitching about the end of coal and like wanting to continue to like dredge oil out of the earth. But it's like, you know what? There's a lot of money to be made in solar. Like there, and people want it. People don't want to be breathing smog. Do, do you see what I'm saying? It's kind of the same thing. You have these entrenched powers that are used to making money in an in an old way that's now dated, and they're missing an opportunity. If all you're about is money, like you, here it is, you know. Right, and I think your analogy draws on the fact that it's a systemic problem. Yeah. So like we can't like Shonda Rhimes. We can't. She can't do everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like we have to get more Shonda Rhimeses. Like yes. it, it's she's she's already doing so much, and she's the name in the face. Or Mindy Kaling. Like we have these like mega stars who are doing so much, but we have to help. I mean, this is what we're doing with our conference. It's like we have to help women advance so that they more of us can get into those top roles i will say i feel like hollywood is starting to get the message i think the oscars this year i mean i'm not saying it's going to be fixed in a year but i think that there is something tipping in terms of representation in terms of people having had enough in terms of people in positions of power recognizing that if they don't do something like bad things are going to happen to them i would think i mean so going back I mean, also, and i mean professionally no i'm not saying i'm not suggesting people are going to like take them out i i mean i have a crowbar in yeah, the car. i'm, gonna, I'm, gonna I'm go. about to take out some people's <laughs> knees um but no but also just going back to going back to, again to issues of representation and you know hiring eddie redmayne so that you can make the danish girl etc what's an added insulting to me so you know 
one of our advisors who I was just interviewing for our podcast yesterday is named Shadi Petoskey. She's a trans woman who sold a pilot to Amazon, Danger and Eggs. It's a kid's show. It's going to series. We're very excited. All right. Um, but, you know, talking about her, and she's very vocal about this, that trans stories are hot now. You know, like Hollywood does rip from the headlines. <laughs> the whole reason why they made the Danish girl was because there's this cultural zeitgeist around trans issues and they're like, we want to we wanna do this. This is what's hot. So if it's a hot issue, you're going to make the movie because it's a hot issue. And if you're capitalizing off of this marginalized population being quote unquote in vogue now, but you're not you're not involving them at any level of the production, then, you know, the the trans community has a sign like nothing about us without us. And that's, I think, a very powerful line. I really, really like that. Um, Because, you know, it's not even just Eddie Redmayne was cast, right? That's the tip of the iceberg. Nobody in the highest levels of the production was trans. I think they hired a trans consultant who may not have even been paid. And if you're making stories about a marginalized population and you're not giving you're not putting money in the pockets of that marginalized population that to me is deeply offensive i mean the same thing goes for the nina simone movie if you look at the production team i think there are two people of color one asian woman and one black man um who i forget his name but he's also in the movie and he is just an executive producer which basically means he was somebody with money It doesn't mean he had any say or did anything. And I think the Asian woman is also an executive producer. Uh, But basically, this is a movie that was almost entirely made by white people who then made this decision that Nina Simone's family is protesting. And it's just the height of hubris, I think, to be like, well, we're not we're not of this population. We're not trans. We're not people of color. We're not women. We're not whoever. But we can make better decisions about what's right for this population. Well, yeah, it's like my, I mean, a buddy of mine here in town got nominated for an Oscar for writing or co-writing uh, Straight Outta Compton. And he's like a white, white gay bro from Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> you know? He has a lot of insight into that. I mean, I mean, I, and I think he admits as much. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's like, I mean, he's sort of like, in on the joke, he's like, I, you know, he got the job and he, he did the work, he did it well, but it's an, it's an you know, it brings up, it speaks to your point. Like, that job seems like a slam dunk that that would go to somebody from the african-american community who really grew up with hip-hop, you know hip-hop and saw like right the- it's like oh we're in la we couldn't possibly <laughs> find anyone from compton to work on this screenplay right and i just i just want to go back to way way earlier point and say i'm not trying to take away jobs from white men per se yeah and if you know if there were more Catherine Bigelow's, for instance. We at BinderCon, I moderated a panel called Space Invaders about women writing genre. And I wanted to make a point in the beginning about, you know, when we talk about women in genre film and how it's like a great year for women, we talk about like Charlize Theron in Mad Max. We talk about Jennifer Lawrence in Hunger Games. We talk about Melissa McCarthy in Spy. All of those scripts were written by men. And I'm not saying, I think they were great scripts. I like those movies. I'm not criticizing that. Um, And then I was trying to think of like, What's the flip scenario? And the only one I could think of was Nicole Perlman writing Guardians of the Galaxy, which also I think is a great movie. And I was trying to think of more examples. I can think of Catherine Bigelow, who's a director, not a writer, um, but who's a woman who's directing male stories. I feel like if 
women were given the same opportunity to write stories about men that men are to write stories about women, I wouldn't care as much. You know, if black people and Asian people were given the same opportunities to write all kinds of stories that white people are, I wouldn't care as much. But it's an access issue as much as it is an issue about what's being represented. Okay. So you guys... uh started this thing it's now i'm sure taken over like a significant portion of your lives <laughs> uh, how you, significant yeah, is it yeah, i don't know i mean you tell me but i mean do you feel like it, it seems like something you kind of like you jumped into not quite knowing what the shape of it was going to be or what it was going to require but you had an instinct and you thought you would you know follow this little uh breadcrumb trail and now here you are four binder cons later um like you know really big name a-listers participating uh, your website and uh, the whole thing just looks like really well done. You know, you've obviously put a lot into it, but you've also done it smartly. Uh, do you have a sense of where it's headed? Do you have a sense of like, oh, you know, the the mission of my life or the nature of my professional life has now shifted dramatically like and unexpectedly because of how um, much this thing has taken off? Well, in the next year, we really have to focus on fundraising because I um – the conferences pay for themselves, but the conferences cost like $85,000 to put on, and there isn't a buffer above that to pay me to do this. So we don't have an office. We don't have a salaried staff. So in the next year, we really need to fundraise outside the conferences so that we can have enough money in the bank to pay me because right now I'm working basically seven days a week for nothing. Um, and I I know that I'm good at my, Lux tells me I undervalue myself, but I know that I'm good at my job, and I think I do an awesome job. Um but it's really hard as a nonprofit we, uh, to get grants for operating costs. It's very hard to get a grant for operating costs. It's very hard to get a grant for conferences. So we're currently relying on sponsorships and ticket sales. But at the same time, we give a lot of scholarships. We comp our speakers. We're trying to make it as accessible as possible. So um, we really have to um, – we're going to organize some auctions or some galas. Bake sale. Bake sale. <laughs> bake sale. What do you, um, how do you fundraise for something like this? Um, we have a multi-tier thing. By the way, I just want to say, if any very generous people who are listening to this podcast would like to help women and gender nonconforming writers, we would love it if you made a donation to our capital campaign. We are a 501c3 and it is tax deductible. So please cut that check for a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> where do you, where do, um, you do this? At the website? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, for for we have a donate button. Uh, we what's, what's the website? Plug it so people bindercon dot com. Okay. B i n d e r c o n dot com. Uh, we also have you can make a donation at crowdrise dot com slash bindercon. You can send money to PayPal at bindercon dot com. You can write a massive check and mail it to Out of the Binders <laughs> Inc. at PO Box two zero three three one. New York, New York, 10009. You guys are making this easy on people. Yeah, no, I will give you all kinds of ways to contribute to us. But no, I mean, in, in all seriousness, we're primarily funded right now through sponsorships. We have some very, very generous, fantastic sponsors. Tiny Letter slash MailChimp have been with us since the beginning. Bustle.com has been with us since the beginning. The Harnish Foundation. Um, we have in the past been supported by the Knight Foundation. We've been supported recently by Amazon Literary Partnership. Uh, Stevens College funded us recently. 
Some of those are massive scholar, uh, sponsorships. Some of those are smaller sponsorships. Uh, but right now they are, as Lee said, mostly covering the cost of the conference. Now, we are working to get bigger sponsorships. We've gotten, we got a grant from the Esmond Harmon Foundation at one point to help bring transgender uh, people to our conference through travel stipends. We are looking, we're just looking into other ways. You know, we have our own podcast. We're now looking into monetizing our podcast by selling ads on it. So at the very least, the podcast pays for itself. Um, But we would love individual donors. I mean, my sister works, does uh, development for Human Rights Watch. And the way that Human Rights Watch, one of the big ways that they sustain themselves is through large donors. So people who are cutting checks for 10, 15, 20, $100,000. And we recognize that we need to cultivate that user base. So we're looking to do fundraising parties. We're looking to get in touch with people who are committed to what we're doing and are looking to support our work. That becomes a big part of the job. I mean, like not just in the short term, but that's the when you're doing stuff like this, like fundraising is a big part of it. Um, it's not always easy to ask people uh, for money. I guess that's an understatement. But if you really believe in what you're doing and you believe in the cause, then maybe it makes it a little bit easier to make the ask. I think it's easy to ask for money. You do. Yeah. Do you want to give me that's why we're partners? Do you want to give me 20 bucks? <laughs> I mean, I, I'll take it. Yeah, right. Open your wallet right now. <laughs> It's hard because you know I I do need someone whose job it is to do that. I have no one. I have no money to pay someone. You know I have this organizing staff that's all volunteers that I rely on. Um, so it, we really have to. It's like this this we have to build the infrastructure to get the money so that we can pay for the infrastructure. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the one of the things that we're going to have to deal with as we grow, and one of the challenges is that. The problem with us having a full-time staff, potentially, is that if you're a full-time staff member of a nonprofit, you are not a working writer. And we rely for, to, keep the, to keep the organization relevant and thriving and useful for working writers, we need to have a lot of stuff planned by working writers. So I don't know that we're going to have... Why? Like, because they're in the community yeah, and they're active? And because they... they're, they're in the community. If I'm just like sitting in my office fundraising and doing all this stuff, I don't know what screenwriters need i don't know what novelists need like if i get uh programming and i'm just not in the community i can't necessarily tell if that's relevant to the people in the community i just think it's very very important for us to have i don't know if that's my worst fear though because i mean my my dream my dream would be to do binder con half the time and write books half the time and my new book that i brought you a copy of brett all right um it comes out august 2nd and it's a memoir and i sold it while i was doing binder con so in my fantasy life half my time is binder con and half my time is writing books but yeah. that's not a full-time job. That's a, I mean, that, that's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to be like a full-time staff of 10. Or if we do, like maybe our fundraising person is not necessarily a writer, but someone who understands our organization. Um, it's a gift. It takes, but it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a, a gift to manage a community and to manage a fundraising community. There are people that are really good at that, you know, and then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think, for instance, our regional director in L.A. is this fantastic woman, Jessie Gaskell, who is a writer at Conan. I think Jessie serves more use to us being a writer at Conan who is dedicated to working on this organization than she would be if she quit Conan and came and worked for us full time. I'm just saying I think we have to find a balance because we do want to 
maintain relationships with working writers. We do want working writers to be making the, the important decisions about what we're doing. Um, well, like even our publicist, Kima Jones, is a poet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, and my, Melissa Broder, my writing partner, publicist and poet. It seems to be like a, maybe that's a thing. But... Poets are just really good at everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. For those who don't know, Lee is a poet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but has this shifted your sense of uh, who you are, your life? I mean, is it, am I thinking too deeply? It, I mean, it seems like th- this is one of those things that's got a cause attached to it that, that extends beyond the self, extends beyond one's like literary ambitions or you know like this is a big impact and you're reaching out to a lot of people potentially i mean already a lot of people hundreds thousands of people have um been impacted by this or have participated in this that has to feel good that has to yeah it's a weird thing i'm like only realizing like now i'm like oh i'm a leader of something like i'm a boss of something like i get so many i'm getting more emails and messages i've ever gotten in my whole life and it one i'm like why is everyone contacting me <laughs> then i'm like oh i'm like the boss of a community of 34,000 people like that's why people are contacting me yeah. so as i become more the face of this organization and i do more interviews and i show up in pictures with lisa kudrow etc cetera, etc cetera, um, I'm gaining visibility, which is great for my career. At the same time, I'm gaining in hundreds of emails um, asking me for things. Yeah. So it is a weird... Email's the worst. Email's the worst. No, yeah. Facebook Messenger is the worst because I can't set an away message on Facebook Messenger. Oh, that sucks. Facebook Messenger just sucks, period. Uh, it's like my least favorite form of communication, but sometimes I have to rely on it because it's the only way I know how to get a is hold of Is that like Facebook someone. email or is that the like instant it's messenger? Like the instant messenger, but they're kind of the same thing. It's all very confusing. I don't like it. It's badly done. You can't say I'm away? Like don't, no. fuck, don't fucking message me? I don't me. think so. You can't turn it off? I, like, I, I had it turned off when it was just, because it used to be there was like Facebook message, which is kind of like email in an inbox and then also the little pop-up thing. And then I was like, I don't want these pop-up things i'm turning it off i don't want to feel always available just because i'm looking at pictures of my nephew uh but then they changed it so that now the thing that was messages if you message anyone it comes through as the pop-up and you can't you can't make it so you're not accessible and i don't like it but sometimes people contact me that way and sometimes it's important i got a job offer that way the other day so i kind of needed that yeah um but no, uh, in terms of has it changed has it changed my conception of myself? I have a very high opinion of myself, and I've always known I was going to change the world in some way. So no, no, this just feels right. I I think tip of the iceberg. This yeah, is just the beginning. Of I mean, the- I think what, what it's. I also started doing this at a very transitional time in my life. I had sold. I used to run the site Fleshbot, which I ran for Gawker Media, and then I acquired from Gawker Media, and then I sold it. And I met Lee like four months, five months, I don't know, whatever, a few months after I sold it, when I was just like, what am I, what's my next plan? And my next plan had not been running a nonprofit for women and gender nonconforming writers, but it's a pretty good one. Um, it's It's been interesting, I think, becoming, becoming a part of this community and running this community has given me the opportunity to learn so much about different ways of writing and different ways of monetizing writing. And it's really, it's put me in touch with a producer who I'm developing a pitch with. So that's really cool. But it's also like made me think about like, what are my career goals? I'm like, do I want to be a TV writer in a writer room? Probably not. Would I want to create a TV show that I feel passionate about and maybe I'm overseeing? Perhaps. Like that seems more appealing to me. 
Um, yeah, why start at the bottom? Start right? at the top. Right? Well, again, I have a very high opinion of myself. But it's interesting because there are people who they just want to write TV. And it doesn't have to be their project. Some people even prefer to work on other people's projects. And I'm not – I think that's great. Like, You're not I an think, Indian. You're a chief. Right. Right. Is that, the, is that um, an offensive? That might I be just, racist. I, just, I don't I just know. Say, I'm sorry. But I just think – I mean, I think it's interesting because it's like – like I have theories about relationships and whatever and I'm like, you know, there are people who are leading roles. There are people who are ensemble players. There are people who are supporting players. And it, it's weird to me in this culture that we assume that leading role is necessarily better than supporting player. But they're all essential parts of the mix. Right. I mean, I'm someone who needs a lot of attention and always wants to be in the spotlight. Our lawyer is someone who hates the spotlight and really feels better supporting other people. I mean, I don't always need to be in the spotlight, and I do like supporting other people. I'm a little bit of a mix, but I need attention. I need a good amount of attention. By the way, I really feel bad about that Indian chief thing I just said. Like it's okay. You know, I feel like it's like when I, I still say like jip, and then I'm like, oh, I feel bad because technically that's like – a slur towards the Romanche people because of gypsies and oh, all this. God. And we just get this stuff ingrained and it's so hard to shake it. Right. I mean, to, to, if it makes you feel any better, Lee and I had, um, this little, uh, graphic. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still on like 20%. I'm very exhausted. <laughs> we had this little graphic made up for the conference that we tweeted out and it was in the program and it was encouraging people to use gender neutral language because we often have, speakers who are just like ladies or whatever and not of all of our attendees identify as ladies and for them that feels like they're not being seen or like they're not included so we have this graphic and it's like don't say ladies don't say you guys just say like hey everyone or binders or you know folks or friends and then lee and binders i spend... is now a thing you're a binder if, right. you, if you go to BinderCon, you're a binder yep <laughs> Lee and I spent the whole weekend being like, hey, you guys, and then immediately dialing it back. And I spoke to a woman, and she did that, and I was like, it's okay. It's really hard to break that habit because it's just okay. I'm conditioned to think of you guys as gender neutral. Well, that's what I was kind of getting at earlier when we were talking about they and them. You know, it's I, – I agree. I'm, I'm open. I want, I want us to be supportive of everyone. Like, it almost becomes a linguistic challenge. It's not an issue of belief or support or – um, open heartedness. Like I'm all the way there. I'm just, I keep fucking up on the language. But I think this is the thing. I, uh, I mean, I think if I, there are people who are, there are people who come at it. Like if you fuck up the language, you're a horrible person. And I think those people are dealing with other issues themselves. A lot of people I know are more like, look, please just make an effort. Um, again, going back to my friend, Jis Lee, one of the things that I find very endearing about them is that, they recognize that they're going to get read as female in a lot of situations, and they understand that people might call them she. And they understand that people sometimes don't get it and still stumble. And for them, if you call them she, they don't think you're a horrible person necessarily. But if you understand and call them they, that makes them really happy and it makes them feel seen and appreciated. And for me, that kind of attitude makes me all the more committed to get over any kind of like, oh, that's weird, that's clunky, I don't understand it, and call them they because I am now making someone I care about happy rather than avoiding avoiding angering someone who is maybe coming at me unnecessarily like aggressively like and i'm not saying like everybody comes at it i'm not saying that it's wrong to be angry about being misgendered i'm not saying that it's 
I'm not saying that people don't have a right to be angry about being misgendered because they absolutely do. And when someone is willfully misgendering, like we've had trans participants who are women, but they repeatedly get called he by people who are like, well, you're not a real woman. And that I think then you're being a jerk. Right. But I guess my, my, my basic takeaway here is don't be a jerk. If you fuck up, apologize and try harder next time. And, you know, you might keep fucking up. But if you're fucking up because it's just a hard mental transition to make, no pun intended on the transition one. Um, <laughs> if you know, if it's just a hard, if it's just a hard transition to make, most people are understanding and they just want to know that you care. Right. And they just want to know that you understand their identity and they just want to know that you're at least going to try. Like I've been, I've been with people who get like accidentally misgendered. And if you apologize and say like, I'm so sorry that was on me. Let me do better in the future. That's all a lot of them want. Yeah. Just basic courtesy. It's like, you know, people fuck up my name all the time. And if you fuck up my name and I correct you and you're like, fuck you, I'm not going to be happy. (laughs) But if you fuck up my name and I'm like, hey, that's not how you pronounce it. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, let me like write it down. Let me like do something to remember next time. Great. That's all I wanted. Right. And so, uh, Lee, looking to the future. Uh, I know you, we talked about the fundraising being a part of it because you gotta you got to have the cash in order to keep this going. Um, it seems like a natural progression, maybe, with this big community that you're building, with all this uh, networking going on, and with the way the world seems to be headed, especially in the context of media these days, that you might take the BinderCon brand and extend it into its own media company. Is that a crazy leap? Have you guys talked about that? We've talked about um, maybe doing some kind of book, some kind of anthology. Um, well, I was we were getting interviewed a bunch over the weekend, and when I got asked about like long term goals, I was like, "Yeah, well, ending sexism, racism, ableism, ageism, sizeism, all the isms, you know, and total media landscape takeover." Uh, I mean, I I could see we I think short term I've talked about maybe doing an anthology or some kind of book. Uh, very long term. Could we do a production company? Maybe. That would be cool. Could we do a press? Maybe. That would be cool. Are we going to do it if we don't get money and Lee is not working full time? No, absolutely right. not. So, I mean, if you think those are cool ideas, again, you can send a check. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you know, they're, they are worthy ideas, but you, you, you know, you have it right. You have to have money in order to get a company off the ground. And hopefully there's somebody listening who is a person of extraordinary means who's sympathetic to the cause. Uh, and who will send you a big check. I would do it if I had it. I swear to God. <laughs> uh, and I congratulate both of you. Like I uh, am always admiring of whoever I have in here because they've spent a lot of time writing a book or whatever, but I'm especially um, I'm especially impressed when people like actualize something that's this complex and that starts from nothing and that involves a lot of people and that helps a lot of people. Uh, that's a really noble thing to do. So congratulations and thanks for coming over and sitting here. Thanks, Brad. All right, folks. That's Lee Stein and Lux Alptrom. They did more than just sit here. They actually uh, spoke and interacted with me. For more information on Out of the Binders and BinderCon and the BinderCast, go to BinderCon.com. You can also follow Lee Stein on Twitter. Her handle over there is at rhymes with B. And uh, Lux on Twitter is at Lux Alptrom. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music. As usual, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget uh, about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app available for free. Wherever you get your apps, it's the best way to listen. 
do it. Get the app. You get 50 for free. And then if you want everything, all 400 plus episodes, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. Support the show, 75 cents a month. Uh, please do that. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. So I don't know what I'm going to say to Melissa on stage. I haven't prepared. I don't think she has either. I don't even know if we will. We might just go up there and wing it. What do you suggest I do? I need your advice. I've never done this on stage before. I've always been cloistered. It's also going to be uh, probably the latest that I've been out. In almost a year. I hope I don't fall asleep. It's like, it's so intense for me just trying to do all this stuff with the logistics of my life. Like, uh, my wife is taking the kids out of town just so I can have two nights back-to-back to be out functioning. <laughs> Such a shit show. This is what we have to do. Uh, please remember that Dostoevsky died of a lung hemorrhage and that Emily Dickinson died of Bright's disease. That's it for now. Uh, speaking of uh, family and kids, I got to go inside and, and do stuff. I got to go function parentally. Thanks to Lee Stein and Lux Alptrom. Check out BinderCon. Out of the binders. Support them. And uh, I'll be back talking to you next week. Have a nice AWP if you're doing it. If you're not doing it, uh, that's okay. Okay. <laughs>